We've probably all heard it before. All religions are basically the same. And in fact, in a couple of weeks, we'll be dealing with that in one of our yeshiva classes here. All religions are basically the same. We're all on, in other words, we're all on the same road to God together. You know, it's like that saying, all roads lead to Rome. Or, there's no place like home, there's no... No, I'm sorry, that's the wrong movie. Um, however, it does raise an important question regarding our reading portions, our parashiot for the last couple weeks and for tonight. A question regarding what is often called the Ten Commandments, or the Torah, or the Tanakh, the Older Testament, or the Mishkan, or the Temple, and so forth. And that question is this, in Yiddish, Nu. So, what's so different here? Well, remember that the overall theme of Exodus is the liberation, the reclaiming, the redemption of the children of Israel, which occurs in a broad sense in two stages. As God spelled it out in Moses' mouth, it, Exodus chapter 7, 16. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me, again, remember Moses is speaking to you, talking to Pharaoh, saying, send free my people. Literally, it's send out my people, but send free my people, that they may serve me in the wilderness. The first stage, then, was the Exodus itself. Sending God's people free a release from the rule of Pharaoh. By the uh, reading portion Yitro from, what, two weeks ago, the first stage, the send-free stage of Israel's liberation is both complete as well as confirmed. It was confirmed by what took place at the Sea of Reeds. And we are then well into the second stage of Israel's liberation, the part that is they, or pardon me, that they may serve me. So, we're told in uh, the text from just a couple weeks ago, At Mount Sinai, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called out to him, saying, Say to the house of Jacob, Yes, tell the children of Israel, If you will hearken, yes, listen to my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Exodus 19. Now, This raises the question, however, what purpose could God have for a kingdom of priests, a holy nation? Well, it appears that the Lord set Israel in place to be his personal representative, to be an example to the nations, one, for having a relationship with the Lord himself, and two, uh, a... um, an example for having relationships with one another. So, how do we know this? Well, the terms of the Lord's covenant with Israel are elaborated on, are spelled out in Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 to 14. These are what are often called the Ten Commandments. Technically, the text says the Ten Words that God addressed to Israel. And these words address, first of all, Israel's relationship with the Lord, verses 2 to 11 of chapter 20, and then with one another as well as with others, chapter 20, verses 12 to 14. And then in Exodus chapter 22, 17 to 23, 19, um, that text lays down guidelines addressing social and ethical and moral and religious issues. Leviticus and Deuteronomy follows this up in turn. These events took place 
during, or pardon me, these texts took place during the journey that's described by Numbers. And uh, they expand on and they summarize this stuff. In other words, Israel receives the words that enable her to be a model for the nations. Now, please understand that a model must, must be significantly different from whomever it is intended to be a model for. If there was no marked distinction between the nearby cultures and Israel itself, Israel would then merely be a redundancy and consequently of no real practical significance whatsoever. So the model, Israel, must be unique or at least have a recognizably better culture than the nations of that time. And in fact, there are a couple interesting books that have been written. There are several interesting books that have been written on this. I will only share with you a couple that I often share with my classes. One by Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, The Bible Against This Environment. Not that the Bible stands against its environment, but the Bible is viewed against the backdrop of its environment. And one by, by Walton, W-A-L-T-O-N, and uh, it's not John Boy, although the, first, the author's first name is John, by the way. Um, ancient Israelite literature and its cultural context, both of these texts show how radically different the culture of Israel was from the culture of the surrounding nations. And so... Appropriately, in keeping with this understanding, the reception of the Torah, the biblical instructions on Mount Sinai by Moses, is compared by the rabbis, the sages of old, to a marriage ceremony. The cloud on the mountain is like the marriage canopy, or the chuppah. The shofars that sounded, and we read these texts in the previous weeks, the shofars that sounded with the thunder and the lightning, along with the voice calling out, are like the witnesses to the marriage, they remind us. And the Shabbat, the Sabbath, is considered as the wedding ring. Sometimes we do Veshamru, Exodus 31, verses 13 to 16, which reminds us, this shall be a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Forever. That in six days God made the heavens and the earth, and the seventh he rested. And this will be my sign to them throughout all their generations. It's the wedding ring, Shabbat is, it's the sign. So Israel is the bride, and God is the groom. The honeymoon, as it turns out, is the 40-year period that they walk hand in hand in the Sinai Peninsula, when bride and groom are together and get to know each other. Not surprisingly then, given this understanding, the Lord's covenant with Israel was clearly distinct from what existed in any of the other Near Eastern cultures then present. And if you remember, last week I suggested just a couple of the differences between the law codes of those days and the covenant or treaty that this particular covenant was in fact. Um, don't have the time to get back into that, but guess what? Get the drash from last week. It's available on Vimeo, as well as just plain audio, and you'll get that story. Or, since I share this in a number of the classes, take a seminary course or two. All right, is that enough commercials all wrapped up into one? Okay, then I can continue? All right, back to the story. One rather obvious distinction between this covenant and those around is monotheism, the exclusive worship of one God, as opposed to the polytheism of Egypt and the other Near Eastern cultures. Another very stark notion 
is the notion of a God actually having a covenant with a people, a living, intimate relationship with his people. And so the covenant itself is understood by the rabbis of old and properly so as a ketubah, a wedding covenant or contract. And uh, we celebrate this every year at Shavuot as we celebrate the giving of that covenant, that ketubah. In all of history, there is no known example of this or of anything else that could possibly have given the Israelites this idea. It was an original and absolutely unique concept. Other unique concepts, and there are many, of this covenant are the prohibition of idolatry, the institute, institution of the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the ultimate picture of freedom, a day off from the work of the week. Additionally, turning to the content of those instructions themselves, we can see how Israel is clearly directed to be unique for its place and time. For example, in the laws of Near Eastern cultures, penalties for violations of a law were determined, the penalties were determined by the victim's social status. So in one culture, if a man strikes a woman, causing her to miscarry, if the woman is from the upper class, the wrongdoer pays ten shekels. But he only pays five if the woman is from the common class. So the Torah makes no distinction in punishing violators based on financial well-being or on social status. That's unique. We are all equal before the Lord, the covenant tells us. And some Near Eastern cultures permitted vicarious covenant, pardon me, vicarious punishment, meaning the offender does not pay does not even pay the penalty. Someone else does it for him. Hammurabi, the major Near Eastern law code of that time period, for example, decreed that if a man strikes a pregnant woman, causing her to miscarry and die, the assailant's daughter is put to death. Deuteronomy 24.16, in stark contrast, limits punishment to the actual offender. In other words, we are all responsible for our own conduct before the Lord. In Near Eastern laws, furthermore, violations of property rights incurred the death penalty, thus effectively placing the value of land and things above human life. However, the Torah never imposes the death penalty for violating property rights, setting the value of human life above the value of property and possessions, and setting the value of life above 610 of the 613 guidelines we have in the texts of the Tanakh of the Older Testament. The rabbis remind us that all but three can be violated if it means the preservation or the protection of life. What three, you might ask? Wrong night, wrong class, some other time. It's this concern for the sanctity of human life that gives rise to the Torah's deep and repeated and compassionate concern for the plight of the poor and disadvantaged. And the very juxtaposition of last week's portion with the portion below, before rather, last week's portion, which talks primarily about civil and social behavior, and the week before, the one talking about the ten words and the instructions with respect to uh, 
religious worship. That juxtaposition provide a further startling insight into the uniqueness of this covenant that comes from God. And that is, there is no separate realm of religion in the usual sense of the word. Now, most people think of religion as a matter of ritual and spirituality. Western society even differentiates, as we are familiar with the terms, between church and state. But the Torah knows no such distinction. To the contrary, from the Torah's perspective, with respect to the covenant given the Lord himself, all areas of life are intended to be intertwined. And holiness derives as much from correct business dealings as it does from piety and matters of religious ritual. In fact, the rabbis of old tell us that the first question God asks when we see him in the heavenly realms is, were you honest in business? You see, in Judaism, the concept of the temple is to be found not only in the temple, but as much so in the office and in the home, as well as the synagogue. This is one significance of the juxtaposition of these two readings, the reading from last week and the one from the week before. So then it's quite natural that immediately after carrying us through the recognition of God's power through the miracles of the splitting of the sea, and the scene at Sinai, the Torah then introduces regulations that seem to be almost mundane in what they deal with. Very ordinary stuff. However, if we understand the context and the connections, they are not in the least mundane. And in fact, they are as much expressions of God's greatness and graciousness as the very first commandment, which says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And if he is the Lord our God who brought us out of the land of Egypt and set us free from slavery, then that should impact every part of our lives, whether it's the very religious or the very ordinary, because the two are intertwined. And this is why and how God created Israel as a model society for others to duplicate. And the cornerstone of it all is that ketubah, the relationship with him, that intimate relationship with him. He reminds us of that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. It says, if you follow these guidelines, then the nations of the world will look at you and say, wow, what a wise and understanding people this is that has laws so great as these and a God so near that he hears and answers prayer. In other words, as we put the text together, we have significant principles to live by, significant principles to live our daily lives by. Principles for us and for others. Principles such as those who live by the sword get shot by those who don't. You have a right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be misquoted and used against you. And then change is inevitable except from a vending machine. Well, I'm sorry, that was the wrong list. It was fun, but the wrong list. Okay. But last week's portion still leaves us with a question at the, at the core of it. At the core of it, we read, and this was what was read to you tonight, and Moses took the book of the covenant and read it into the ears of the nation. And they said, everything which the Lord has spoken, we shall do, 
and we shall listen. In other words, they said yet again, I do, in that marriage ceremony. So why is it only at this point, after a major portion of the Torah has been communicated to the Israelites, why is it at this point that God formally enters into a covenant with them? Wouldn't it have been more logical to establish the covenant at that initial revelation at Sinai? Or even the splitting of the sea? Miracles which took place before the eyes of an entire nation rather than occurring after three more chapters and a hundred verses of detailed instruction. After all, the entire nation had seen God's power. As Exodus 14.31 reads, Israel saw the great hand with which the Lord performed, pardon me, yes, with which the Lord performed against Egypt. And the nation feared the Lord and believed in the Lord. Yes, in this sense, seeing is believing, as the text testifies. But we have got to come to this understanding that seeing is not yet understanding. You see, our eyes see only the externals of the events as they occur, and of individuals as they act. But we don't always understand what lies behind the events we see and how that particular event or action will affect our thoughts and activities. Seeing leaves a superficial impression then, and such impressions fade only too quickly. God reveals the secret. As he says, If only you would listen, surely listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes. Exodus 15:26. You see, God is not satisfied with our seeing. God is waiting for us to listen. In his introduction to the revelation at Sinai, God tells the Israelites, chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, You have seen what I have done to Egypt, but seeing is not sufficient. He goes on, he adds, And now, if you will listen, surely listen to my voice, then you will be to me a kingdom of priest teachers and a holy people. Then you will function effectively as that model, my personal representative before the nations of the world. Look, when one sees, one may very well become awestruck, as we've read, even frightened. But one tends to remain distant. And the sight quickly fades from consciousness. Apparently, it is only then when one really listens, that one becomes truly changed. So, what does it mean then to listen? The watchword of our faith is that which we responded with earlier in the service, Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Which raises yet another question. What is the meaning of that first word? Shema, or hear. Rabbis of the Talmud tell us it means, among other things, to accept the kingship of God. We do that through the Shema. To internalize the implications of the words that he has given to us. To listen in a way that seals one's commitment to their ramifications. So, to internalize the truth with respect to God means to commit ourselves, as it were, heart and soul. Deuteronomy 6. Five reminds us in the second word, of the Shema, second verse of the Shema, to commit ourselves, heart and soul, to His wishes. 
This is what it means then to listen and thereby to enlist oneself wholly and lovingly in God's service. We responded as the Torah processed among us. What is it that the Lord your God requires of you? Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 13. Just this. doesn't start with love him. It starts with fear him, respect him, revere him, serve him. Then love him and walk in all his ways. Please remember, as we are known down through history, we are not the people of the sites. We are the people of the book. And that book consists of words which speak to us. The book is read, and it calls out to us to change. It must be heard. It must be read. It must be absorbed until our personalities are changed from the inside out. And then we can continue in the verses from the Shema. These words are to be on your hearts. You'll teach them to your children. You'll, in fact, express them in your lives as you go, as you lie down and as you get up, as you go out of the door when, as, and also when you come back in the door. In other words, we must internalize God, as the Yiddish says, in our very kishkas, in our very gut. The Israelites apparently interpreted the miracles they saw as what God was doing for them. On the other hand, the words of Torah told Israel that God wanted them to do for him. And so it explained the purpose behind the events. It explained his desire for every individual to be free. His demand that every individual be moral. The sights impressed the generation of the Exodus. But the words, the words are a legacy for all time our time. Therefore, God waits to formalize the covenant until we cry out, as we did in Exodus 24, verse 7, we shall do, and we shall, in fact, listen. That is, we will not just merely see, but we shall hear, internalize, and change under the influences of the divine words. That understanding is repeated for us by the very brother of Yeshua, the Messiah. Yaakov, or James, says this in chapter 1, verses 22 and following. So do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a person who looks at their face in a mirror and after looking at themselves, goes away and immediately forgets what they look like. But the person who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, like that, that's how it's called, the perfect law that gives freedom. Other translations have the royal law of liberty. Both work very well. Anyhow, anyone who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. That's what listening is all about. Now, in concluding, I want to look back at the end of last week's parsha, and then at the beginning of this week's parsha or portion. You heard it read to you. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. But did you listen carefully? And they saw the God of Israel. They saw God. They ate and drank with God. How could this be true? This has got to be a mistake. 
Exodus 33.20 clearly states, You cannot see me and live. Now, there are many explanations for this passage. Clearly, this passage is the covenant confirmation meal of the ancient Near Eastern treaties. But it's more, and the rabbis remind us that it's more. And Shavuot helps us remember that it's more. It is, in fact, the um, wedding sealing meal. Got to say that slowly. From the ancient Near Eastern covenants. The timing of the event. The unique place in which the Israelites were living indicates that this was their wedding day with God. In other words, this was the wedding feast, or what we might call nowadays the wedding reception. Then, in tonight's portion, we're told how the tabernacle was to be constructed. The reason for the tabernacle is also explained by God to Moses in the text that was read tonight. Let them make a tabernacle for me so I can live among them. Now, the Hebrew word that's used here for tabernacle, as many of you are aware of, is mishkan. And mishkan literally means, literally means living quarters. So, literally, God wanted the tribes of Israel to build a portable home where he could live among them. It was to be their honeymoon home together. When the tabernacle of the Mishkan was set up in the camp of Israel, it stood in the center of all the tribes. Every tribe's tents faced the tabernacle to always remind Israel of their loving, covenant-faithful, ever-present husband and king. The one to whom they had all said, and we again tonight had said, I do. We will listen. Which leaves me with one more question. Are you listening? It could make a real difference. Take the next minute or so in quiet quiet, to answer that question for yourself before God.